The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. And Deuteronomy is important to Christ. It's one of the most quoted scripture that he uses, especially when he's tempted in the wilderness. And then we have Isaiah. Isaiah 9 is one of the most clear examples, but all throughout Isaiah and the, small, and the uh, minor prophets, we see a promise of a coming Messiah, a promise of this redemption plan. Don't forget about this redemption plan. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But then God chose to do this redemption plan in a fairly different way. The timing was unexpected, and the way that he chose to do it was in a different way from a power perspective. The, un- the, the timing was unexpected to the people. They had been languishing for 400 years without a prophet, without anybody, to t- without any revelation from God. But Galatians 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so we might have redemption as sons, or receive adoption as sons, I'm sorry. And so we have this time of waiting and longing and waiting for God to come, waiting for God to reveal himself, waiting for God to implement this plan of redemption, and then John the Baptist comes, and we have our first prophet that's calling out. But the other part of the way God chose to bring bring the Redeemer into the world was um, different in, in some ways than we see in the Old Testament where he was powerfully speaking. He was very apparent. It was very clear. The creator of the universe chose to bring Christ to us in a very unexpected way. It was expected in the sense that he was born of the woman, of the seed of, um, and in the line of David, But he entered the world in complete helplessness as a baby, in complete helplessness. He set aside his power and entered the world as a helpless baby. And that's different than what we had seen in previous uh, revelations from God. Uh, Martin Luther calls this left-handed power. Uh, And so he talks about right-handed power, which is this power of kings and authorities and speaking into existence and this, this power, like outwardly powerful to us. And what he talks about, when he talks about this left-handed power, he says this is a, a willed helplessness. So Christ set aside his power. He didn't give it up. He set it aside. Um, and so we see this left-handed power being um, displayed in the way that Christ uh, came into the world. We see it later on where he could have called the legions of angels to take him off the cross, and he didn't. This willed helplessness um, to complete what Christ had, what God had for him. So the birth, and then the birth, and all the circumstances of the birth, born in a manger, not in a house, born in Bethlehem, um, these were all brought by God. In hindsight, we can see how they were brought by God. Um, to complete this next step in his story of redemption. And so this is the Christmas story. This is the story that God sent his son to take on humanity. He was born of a virgin so that redemption would come to us. And so our scripture today is from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and light and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man uh, sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, who, full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to um, worship you and to reflect on Christ's coming. Um, we pray that you would um, give us open hearts to hear from you and what you have for us, and I pray that you would help me to only speak clearly and what is from your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So John, uh, in contrast to some of our other, uh, the other gospels, we'll talk, we're going to spend time tonight in the Christmas Eve uh, candlelight service really talking about the narrative of how Jesus was born and what happened with the wise men and the shepherds and so forth. And so I wanted to kind of focus more on like what this, what does it mean? What does this um, coming of Christ, this incarnation actually mean? Um, so John, John's gospel differs in that it doesn't do a lot of this initial narrative about what happened with Mary and Joseph and the spirit coming to Mary before and so forth. Um, John's approach is much more theological, much more focused on here is what this means. And it makes sense. John was writing to a somewhat of a different audience. This audience would have, like us, been very familiar with the Christmas story. Um, John's gospel is, is probably was written a little bit later, and it was written to, um, uh, from what I understand, Christians that had been dispersed. And so they were kind of, he was writing this gospel much more as an encouragement to Christians then as a way, like Luke was like, hey, I got to write down what happened because I, I like an investigative reporter style. And so John's focus, he gets right to the point in this first chapter. And his focus is really on encouraging. And he tells us what the purpose of his whole book, uh, this whole gospel is. In John 20, he says, I wrote this so that you all would believe in Christ, the Son of God, and have life. And so we're going to talk about this idea of life um, but first, we start with the first three verses, which establishes, first, who Jesus Christ is. Who is this Christ that we're talking, that's come to us? And he actually doesn't get to the point of talking about Jesus coming in the flesh until towards the end of this passage in 14 through uh, 18, where he talks about the word becoming flesh. But in order for that to make sense, but not only for it to make sense, in order for that to actually hit you and realize what a glorious miracle this is, he has to first tell us who, what's happening. Who's here? Who is this person that's becoming flesh? 
And so he says in the beginning, John places Jesus, from the very first verse, John places Jesus where God should be. And so he's establishing Jesus as God. Not as like a God, but as God. He says Jesus was in the beginning. So in the beginning was the word. That's his reference to God. Um, it's interesting, in, in preparing for this, I looked at Calvin's commentary, and John Calvin's commentary, and he doesn't use in his actual, read the actual um, scripture, he uses the word speech. So he, instead of word, he says speech. And so he's tying this idea of word or speech back to the creation. God spoke into existence. And so what he's saying is that Jesus was the word. In the beginning was the word. At the very beginning of creation, Jesus already was. So this is establishing him as God. He was in the beginning. And we get this sense in, in Genesis 1.26, it says, let us do this. But we get this sense that Jesus was God and that this word is God's active creation um, motor, uh, motor for lack of a better term. This is what God is, God's actions are coming out through this word. And so from the start, John wants us to know that this Christ that's coming to us in the flesh and dwelling among us is really and truly God. He's God. And so we have this clear establishment here. And so it counteracts, and we see in church history from the very early stages, one of the first major controversies was, is Jesus really God? And we came out and we said, the Arian controversy, we, we came, the Council of Nicaea came together and said, yeah, he's really God. And so from 300 AD, we have established as a Christian church that Christ is God. He was in the beginning, he was before creation, and he is God. He's God in person, and he's God in action, and he's now acting in the world. And this tie to creation that John is doing here is not accidental. So not only is he establishing Jesus as God, but he's pulling creation in to say, not only is he God, but he is actually inaugurating this new creation. So this plot twist of Jesus coming is inaugurating a new creation. This is a new and better story that is coming into focus here. John then goes um, to, in, in verses four through eight, he talks about in him was life and life was the light of men. And this is a really common theme. Um, I know we had gone through the entire book of, of John fairly recently, um, but that theme of life and light came up over and over and over again. So John mentions the theme of life 36 times throughout the book. Most of the time he's referring to eternal life, but what he's trying to get at here is a little bit more than that. He's tying this to creation. So he's saying not only is Jesus the true God, but he's the living God and he's the life-giving God. So this is, a, this is the idea that Jesus was part of the creation, before, well, not part of the creation, there I go saying, he was there at creation. He was responsible. He was part of the creation of the world. But he also is sustaining that creation. So his life is life-sustaining. So this is a 
not only, not only a spiritual life that he's providing, but also a physical, biological life as well. So in Christ, not only do we see that he's God, but we also see that, he, um, that we find life in him. This is true life. This is eternal life. This is a redemptive life that he offers to us. In John 10.10, 10, Christ says, I came so that they may have life and may have it abundantly. So this is a life that is powerful and useful and uh, transformative to us. And then he also um, talks about light, this idea of light. And this is a theme that kind of talks, that, that he walks through um, in five and then also in six, seven, and eight. But he talks about life. This, he has the life that was the light of men. This is another, this idea of light is, and darkness is another major theme in John. One of the commentators, other commentators that I looked at um, that helped prepare for this talks about what light does, the different things that light does. Um, the first, th the four things that they mention is that light reveals, light warms, light guides, and light stimulates life, getting back to this idea of life and light kind of combined. So light reveals. It reveals God to us. It reveals our true situation outside of Christ. And scripture uses this idea of talking about enslavement to sin and darkness and walking in darkness and contrast that with this idea of light. Light also warms. So the com commentator talks about how light could potentially warm our hearts in order for us to be changed. Light also guides. So not only does it reveal our true nature, does it reveal the nature or the res our relationship to God, but it also guides us. So Psalm 119 says that the, the word is the light into our feet and the lamp into our path, right? I think I said that right. But we see in the Old Testament, in Exodus specifically, the pillar of fire and the glory cloud that guided, that not only revealed to the people of Israel where they should go, but also guided them in that way. And it also stimulates life. And this is this idea of life and light kind of coming together. We see light and darkness contrasted in the Christmas story. So if we think about the narrative of the Christmas story, we see first, and I mentioned this at the beginning, there's 400 years of darkness. There's no revelation from God. There's no prophets. And so silence, darkness, that often gets combined. And so this idea of the darkness of not having a revealed light. We sang a song. I, can't, I saw a lyric that made me think about that when we were singing this morning. But we also have the angels coming to the shepherds, right? We can talk about that, this idea of, of power and the idea that, that God chose to reveal first to the shepherds, the, low, the lower class of people. That could be its own kind of concept. But he comes to them at night, and he announces in darkness this light that's coming. The wise men followed the star of Bethlehem, indicating that they were following the star at night. Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt after Christ was born, fled to Egypt to avoid Herod at night. And so we have this light and darkness. But in verse, um, 
5, John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We think about when this, John was writing this after Christ, Christ's life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And he's saying, has not overcome it. I don't know Greek to go back that far, but has not means like, hey, it still hasn't overcome it. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It makes us think back to Genesis 3, that promise of the, the head being crushed and the heel being bruised. You will bruise his heel. A, a bruised heel and a crushed head aren't the same thing. A, a crushed head is a final, like this is a, a conquering thing versus a bruised heel is something that you can get over. So this was, this was kind of talking about this idea that Christ would be bruised but would not be conquered. And so here we have this idea of the darkness is not overcoming. The opposition to Christ's light has not and will not be overcome. We're going to proclaim this same story that John was talking about, and we're going to say Christ came, and he lived a life, and he died, and he resurrected, and he ascended, and he will, his light will not be overcome. And we know this from Revelation 22, where he says this. He says, my light, I'm, I'm, I'm here, and I'm going to come soon. And so Hark the Herald Angels sing, one of my favorite Christmas um, carols says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. And we say amen to that. Before, again, before we get to this idea of this incarnation where John specifically lays out, okay, he became flesh and dwelt among us, we have this, this part uh, from verses 9 to, 9 to um, 13 where John says, okay, this light has come. The life and light of men has come. And you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta deal with this. This is something to be dealt with. And he says in nine, this light um, came to everyone. Uh, he was in the world and the world was, uh, was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And we see in verse 12, a but. But, just like we see in Paul's writings in Ephesians 1 and 2. But you were this way. You rejected Christ. But to those who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not out of blood or the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. So in the middle of this, here's who God, here's who Christ is. Here's what it means that he came into this world. He brought light and life into this world of darkness. And before we get to the, the details of him coming in the flesh, John drops the gospel right in the middle of it. And he says, by the way, you can't not respond to this. And so Christ, this light to the world, this life-giving God, we have to respond to this. There's a response that has to occur. We can't just see this truth 
this Christ that's come and remain apathetic towards it. So where do you stand here? Where do you stand on who this Christ is? Was he a good teacher? Was he just a good person that lived a life a while ago and happened to be remarkable? Or is he who John says that he is? Because if he's who John says that he is, then he's the, the God that created everything and that came to us. And he is the only source of life, true life. He was born. He lived a sinless life in complete obedience to God's law. He went to the cross and died for our sins and rose on the third day and conquered sin and death. And he's calling everyone everywhere to respond to this light. And what is he calling people to do? He's calling people to repent of their sins and believe, John, it's right here, believe and receive Christ by faith. If you've not placed your faith in Christ, this conquering Savior and King, we pray that today would be the day that you would do that and that you would be welcomed in to this as children of God, this, this adoption language, we're being adopted um, through our faith in Christ. Well, the last thing that I wanted to talk about with this scripture before we get into a little bit of, of application is this idea of the closeness of this incarnation. And so John starts big, the creation, God, spoke into existence, light and life, big characteristics. And then in 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a lot of mystery here. How did God do that? How did he physically do that? But it says the word became flesh. He's the life sustainer and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh. Now, when we see flesh here, this is not the same flesh that we um, talk about or that Paul will talk about where he's talking about the sinful nature or sinful flesh. He'll use flesh as an example of that. What John means here is that he became flesh. He took on full humanity um, and he didn't come into being as a human. He always was. Remember, we have to remember what John said first. He didn't, he became flesh, but he wasn't created. He became flesh. He took on flesh, um, even though his existence is eternal. But he had to take on this full human nature in order to accomplish God's redemption plan. And then he dwelt among us. And so the commentators pretty, pretty much across the board say that this word for dwelt among us is tabernacled with us or moved into the neighborhood. I think uh, the, the message translation, which I don't recommend necessarily, um, takes a lot, there's a lot of, I think the author would even say there's a lot of, a lot of uh, license given there. But um, this idea of tabernacling with us. So this is a reference to Exodus. The tabernacle was um, a place where God met his people. And it was a transient place because it was during the Exodus until the temple was built. The tabernacle was in the middle of the camp. It was in the center of the camp. And now we could say that Christ has 
tabernacled with us, has moved into the center of our existence as Christians. And unlike Israel, where they weren't allowed to see God, the tabernacle was set up so no one could truly see God face to face. John says here that we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. This idea that this great God who created everything and um, gives us life and light in this world, the fact that he became flesh and the fact that he chose to tabernacle with us in a more intimate way than we've seen in the history of God's people should be just awe-inspiring and should hopefully jolt us out of the monotony that sometimes hits us around this time of the year. And so how should we respond to this? Well, I've talked about one way we should respond. If you aren't um, placing your faith in Christ, then you should do that. We, we pray that you would do that. But as Christians, how should we respond? This is, this is, these are truths that are worth celebrating. These are truths that are life-changing and life-giving, and they should prompt us to worship and celebrate. We should celebrate these truths because we need reminding. Every Sunday we come here and we need to be reminded of these truths. And on Christmas, we have an opportunity to use even our culture, even our uh, culture that wouldn't proclaim the name of Christ, and we can use the things in our culture to remind us of these truths that are truly true. <clears throat> we need reminding, we need refreshing, we need comforting, we need humility sometimes. We need to hear how big God is, what, what an amazing Savior Christ is, and that we have the opportunity to worship him. So should we celebrate this Christmas season? I would say yes. I'm not going to get into a debate over whether you should have a Christmas tree or not, or whether you should do this or that as part of the cultural that we live in. But yes, we should celebrate Christmas. We should use it as an opportunity with right-mindedness, with a focus on what God has done for us, and say yes. Let's plop that Christmas tree in our living room and remember that Christ is life. And then that tree points up to God. We should put the star on the top and say, yes, that star of Bethlehem guided people. That's light in the darkness. That's a great reminder to us of what God has done for his people. We should give gifts. John ends this passage by talking about grace. Grace is undeserved gifts. We should give gifts to remind ourselves, to remind our children especially, to help teach them about what it means to give good gifts, that God, our Father, gives good gifts, and we should too. And we should feast because we're, we're celebrating what God has done and we're thinking about the future feast that we have in glory. So God, the other thing that we should do is we should use this story and this opportunity to give us hope, to walk forward in hope, hope and joy. God promised to send a deliverer. He did it. He promised it, and he did it. God promises to make all things new, and, he, and that we should live lives in this world that reflect what God has promised to do. 
He has promised to make all things new. God, Christ has promised to come again. In the fullness of time, he's promised to come again, and that should make us optimistic. That should make us hopeful about the future. That should make us think about how wonderful a God we serve is, that he was faithful to his people, and he came in a, 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 a timing that they didn't expect and in a, in a way that they didn't expect from a power, power perspective, but he came, and he came to give life to us. John 1, or 1 John 1, 1 through 4, kind of repeats what, we've talked, what John talked about in his, first, in his gospel. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on, on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's, come, he's, he's saying, okay, I told you at the beginning of my gospel, here's what's, gone, here's what's happening. And then you got to put your hands on it. You got to see Christ and feel him and be with him. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, dwelling among us, fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Christians, we have every reason in the world to be hopeful and joyful. The Christmas story tells us this. The Christmas story preaches this to us every week that we repeat it. We, don't, we talk about it big time in, in December 25th, um, but every single week when we are reminded of what Christ did, he came, he did what we don't deserve, and that should spur us on to hope and joy as we go forward. And we have a promise that he's going to make all things new. Joy to the world, right? The, the third verse of joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so we praise God for his, for, for his truths here. As we turn our attention to communion, we have an opportunity to tangibly celebrate Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We use the bread and the wine to signify his body and his blood, and we do that because he became flesh and dwelt among us. If you believe in the gospel that I talked about earlier, then this table is for you. Welcome. This is a family meal, and it's an opportunity for us to celebrate what Christ has done. If you have not placed your faith in Christ then hopefully the way that I've explained what this means would mean that it doesn't have the same meaning for you. And so we would ask that you would let the elements pass, but that you wouldn't just sit idly by, but that you would, you would use this time to reflect on the truths that you've heard. Who can account for the sin that you've committed, for the things that you've done and left undone, for the things that you've done to others or not done for others, that if they were done to you, you would hold it against them? Who can give your life meaning that your death won't erase? We hopefully have clearly proclaimed that Christ is the answer to those questions. He gives life. He gives forgiveness for sin. He gives adoption as sons and daughters of God. And we pray that you would consider that uh, during this time.
Father, thank you for, again, these truths. Thank you for this Christmas season where we have tangible opportunities to remember what a great God you are, what a great Savior Christ is, and how awesome your story of redemption is, and that we get to be part of it is amazing. And so we thank you for this time. We pray that you'd be with us as we continue to worship you, and that you would help us to remember anew the wonders of what Christ has done. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.